Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I take your inquiries, your complaints, your concerns, your observations, and ultimately your comments about tennis and other things. 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab, many of you left your comments, and the US Open draw is right around the corner. The US Open is right around the corner, and I can't wait to get into it because this is an exciting time. So without further ado, let us begin, beginning with uh, Tony Bones. Hi, Gil. This year will be my first attending the U.S. Open. Do you have any tips or tricks slash must-knows in general for first-timers? I'll buy you a cerveza if I see you. Cheers. Well, thank you for that. And uh, if anybody does see me at the U.S. Open, I will be working for U.S. Open Radio. Uh, please do come say hi. I always enjoy that and appreciate that. Unless I am actively speaking into my microphone, that means I'm on air. Don't say hi. Just wait a moment uh, and then say hi. Um, tips and tricks. What I always say, and this mostly applies to locals, my number one tip is go to qualifying because it's spectacular and it's free. So that's always my first tip. The tennis is great. I love the vibes around the ground. You get up close and personal. You can go to the practice courts and take in the, the star power, see your favorite players, see the top players, uh, if that's what you're into. So I just think qualifying is amazing and that anyone who can go should uh, try to go. So that's my first thing. I guess my second thing, and I, I wish I had more, but I don't. Be adventurous with uh, your food selection. I know when you're at sporting events, oftentimes the food isn't what you're there for and there can be a, a very understandable kind of decision-making process where, okay, I'm at, I'm at sports. I'm just going to get a hot dog. I'm going to get a burger and fries. I'm going to get chicken tenders at the generic kind of U.S. open vendor. And I understand that, but I would just say generally the, the folks that they have come in are pretty good, you know, and I think if you take a little bit of a chance with your food selection, uh, you're generally rewarded by it. So just, uh, you know, I would say uh, don't be gun shy on the more unconventional food selections. You know, it doesn't always have to be burgers and fries at the U.S. Open. Uh, if you, if you, you know, take a chance, it, it works out usually, I think. All right, next one from Medezio 2 Rank the forehands of the top 10 from best to worst, considering the shot by itself and also how it complements the game of a player. Nadal won. 
Tsitsipas 2, Djokovic 3 for how solid it is. Um, Rude 4. Then you have Alcaraz 5. OJ Ali seems an interesting one. I'm going to put him at 6. It's tough because sometimes it can totally fail him, totally betray him. But usually it's essential to his ability to win tennis matches. So FAA 6. Um, Zverev 7. You know, it really can be excellent. It can be big. Uh, Medvedev 8. It's uh, it's quite consistent. But there's also some pace generation issues on the Daniil Medvedev forehand. Nori 9. It's good. It's good, you know. But I don't know. I still think it's ninth. Uh, Hercotch, 10th, and, and that one's easy. This would have been harder to do, honestly, if, like, some of these guys just outside the top 10, um, Rublev, Berrettini, Sinner, Fritz, but I feel pretty good about that 10. You know, there aren't that many tough calls for me. I think, I think, uh, I think I'm, I'm good on, on that. From Reese O'Neill, what's your take on the Twitter spat between Ben Rothenberg and Riley Opelka regarding Novak Djokovic and his participation at the U.S. Open? Essentially, if you didn't see this, uh, Ben thinks that Novak should have withdrawn already uh, because there is no chance that he is going to be able to play at this point. And the earlier, you know, if he were to have withdrawn before the qualifying began, for example, uh, there would have been a player who would have been afforded the opportunity to play the qualifying and not only potentially make the main draw, but also just make the money involved with playing qualifying, which is actually really significant, which is nice to see. They've uh, they've raised it a ton in recent years. Uh, ben went back, uh, sorry, Riley went back at Ben and uh, said that, you know, obviously Novak should do everything he possibly can to give himself every chance possible to play the U.S. Open. And he, you know, disagreed with Ben. He went on to say that, you know, he quote tweeted a, a tweet later on and said, you know, implied that Ben should have his press credentials revoked. So uh, what I will say about it is uh, I, I disagree with that part from Riley. I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, when you see it, you know it, but I would really uh, strongly disagree with Riley saying that Ben shouldn't get to uh, be credentialed, um, and you're not really going to find me ever, um, almost ever, advocating for journalists' credentials to be taken away. You're almost never going to find—I mean, you can try to hit me with scenarios, and I can say yes or no. I mean, it's going to have to be really, really pretty bad for me to be on that side of this that fence. It's going to have to be pretty darn bad. I don't care if you hate someone's coverage. I don't care how biased you may think someone's coverage about a particular issue is. I don't care if it is sports, politics, entertainment. Unless you rise to a really punitive, uh, really extreme measure of malpractice, you should get to have your credential. And if people decide they don't like your coverage, they can make that decision and not consume your coverage. But at the end of the day, there needs to be um, a, a freedom there. And uh, 
open dialogue. Uh, on uh, with that being said, I disagree with Ben on this issue. I um, I think that Novak should wait until the last possible moment. I said that even back in March uh, for Indian Wells. I think that if there's a point zero zero one chance that Novak can get in, then I think that if he wants to take that chance, then he should he should wait and and see what happens and take that chance. Uh, I look tennis is a selfish sport. Every man for themselves. If you would like to make a charitable donation to one of your peers, that is uh, that's great. That's admirable. But if you are going to be in the me business, yeah, that's kind of what this is. It's an individual damn sport. And I don't think Novak owes anybody anything. With that being said, once it hits the 0% threshold, once there is no chance, once it's just not going to happen, at that point, it's useless for Novak not to withdraw. And that's what I said back in March for Indian Wells. I thought we did reach a point where... There were uh, 36 hours until first ball. And at that point, it's like, okay, you can withdraw right before the draw is made. And I'm pretty sure at that point, the chances are are zero. Um, I don't think, again, I don't think when this happens, it's going to be uh, effective right now. Like, right now you can travel. I think it's going to be like, hey, uh, we're lifting the travel ban. So next week you can come. Uh, that's pretty much what I think this is going to look like. So uh, I do think that Djokovic should not uh, take... I, I do think Novak should withdraw right before the draw is made, but uh, that's not for another, you know, 12 hours. That's my stance. Uh, from Nathan, is coaching during the match going to be allowed at the Open? And if so, what's your opinion on how useful or not useful it could end up being coaching will be allowed at the u.s open i'm fascinated to see this uh take place in person uh because sometimes tv doesn't always capture all of the interactions between player and coach i'm against this i'm not going to use this time to completely get into why i'm against it uh i'm going to have you know i'm sure there's going to be a lot of content about this um especially as the year ends and this trial period is going to come to a close at the end of the year. And then the ATP is going to need to make a decision about whether or not they are going to move forward with this in the future. But I think right now, coaches and players are still figuring out how to best use this. And I don't think it's uh, it's generally not all that useful. I do think that if player, if on-court coaching becomes something that is here to stay, it's going to be optimized. You know, you give something time and it evolves and people are going to get really good at it. And people are going to start using analytics in real time. And I think people are going to be uncomfortable with that. I really do. I think someone is going to use the on-court coaching to an extent that is going to make most tennis fans very, very uncomfortable. Perhaps even some that are currently in favor of on-court coaching, uh, there is going to be a time where where there is going to be a very hands-on, real-time, analytics-driven um, coach-player dialogue that I think is going to make people uncomfortable. And I don't think that is happening right now. 
I don't think it. I don't think we're there yet because this is so brand new. But uh, I really do believe it will come to that, and there will be backlash. From Chung, can Nadal's relatively weaker serve be attributed to the fact that he's serving with his non-dominant arm? And why does Nick have such a big serve despite his lack of height compared to the likes of Opelka and Isner? So the first question, uh, no, it cannot be attributed to that. Nothing can be attributed. I get questions like this all the time. Nothing can be attributed to Nadal's handedness. I, I hate this storyline. You know, Nadal has been playing tennis as a lefty for his entire life. The story about Uncle Tony making him switch has been debunked. It's not true. Uh, Rafa has always played lefty. So he's a lefty tennis player. Like, can we get rid of this? This I, I hate this storyline about how he's a, a natural righty. You know, at the end of the day, he's a lefty tennis player. So... I, I don't get what the big hoopla is about about the fact that he eats righty, the fact that he plays soccer righty, like the fact that he writes with his right hand. I, I, I don't get it. Uh, is there a certain level of ambidextrousness that, that Rafa possesses as an athlete? Yes, but um, I think some righty tennis players have that as well. Uh, is it kind of cute and interesting like, do I think it is a cool, fun fact about Rafa? Yes, I do. But do I think that we should make claims about Rafa as a tennis player based on the fact that he signs autographs with his right hand? No, no, I really don't. I think it's irrelevant to anything he does on the court. Like, if we're going to say that Nadal has a weaker serve because he's serving with his non-dominant arm, explain the forehand. Explain it. You can't. Uh, Nick has such a big serve despite the lack of height because Nick has the best technique that you will ever find. It is the best motion, the most efficient and fluid service motion that you will ever see. And, you know, he's also got a, a live arm, you know, a very, you know, snappy joints, fast twitch muscles that uh, obviously you need. But uh, I don't even, yeah, it's, it, it, he's incredible. It's an, it's an unbelievable serve. That's, that's the answer. It's just spectacular in every single way. You can't say enough about that serve. And that's why when, when Nick was doing a lot of losing and people were asking me, Gil, I don't think Nick's that talented. I really don't think he's that talented. I always said like, all right, cool. Like you can have that opinion, but explain, how are you going to tell me he's not talented with that serve? I mean, every single player below six foot five, and Nick is tall. Like he is a tall guy. He's six foot four, maybe six foot four and a half or something like that. Uh, every player of Nick's size would get on their hands and knees and beg for the serve that he possesses. So how are we saying that he's not talented and that he's some sort of media creation? And because his behavior is really crappy, that is why. Uh, that is why we uh, have propped up Nick to a level of stardom that he is undeserving of. I've never subscribed to that, really. You know, I've always been of the of the mindset. His behavior is really crappy, and he can be unlikable in, in a lot of ways, uh, but he's also certainly an immense talent. Um, you know, I, I did think that his—there was a certain point where I thought his— uh, 
failure to get his body in condition was going to always prevent him from ever doing some, you know, play, reaching the level of consistency that we've seen him reach this year. Uh, but that was just, you know, I didn't think he was physical enough to, to play this game uh, day in and day out at a high enough level. So that's kind of where I, I stood. And, you know, he's just in good condition this year and we see the results. From Ryan, uh, are Medvedev's recent losses a blueprint to beat him? Is Servan Volley the answer, or can Medvedev successfully adapt his game? Should he take a closer return position to counter better? Also, it seemed his serves weren't great against Tsitsipas, and I feel he had a better result against Fritz. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, is this an area for concern as he goes into the U.S. Open? It, it is an area for concern, but a couple of things are true. The first thing is that there are very few players who can actually execute serve and volley against Medvedev successfully. Uh, most players are, uh, they don't have the talent. They can't do it. They don't volley well enough. I'm sorry, but uh, Medvedev hits really good returns. Even though he's from the back fence, he hits really good returns, and you're going to have to hit a low volley. You're going to have to hit a difficult volley, and you're going to have to hit a volley short in the court, or Medvedev is going to pass you on the second ball. Tsitsipas is outstanding. Kyrgios is outstanding. Uh, Hercotch at net. Silence my phone. Hercotch at net is outstanding. Most players aren't that good. So uh, it's only a problem against certain players. Djokovic, um, as we saw in Paris, is, is pretty outstanding as well. Um, most players can't do it. Is it a, a blueprint to beat him? Yes. I just think it took a, a long time for players to realize that they need to sell their soul to a tactic that they never implement at that level of frequency uh, because Medvedev is just that damn good that they must reinvent themselves. They have to play a different way. Um, but, you know, it has gotten to that point where Nick Kyrgios, you know, and Stefano Tsitsipas, two proud players who like to play a certain way and feel like, look, I'm, I'm amazing. I can beat anyone playing my game. It took a couple of years for players like that to be like, as good as I am, yeah, I'm just going to play like uh, Taylor Dent against Daniil Medvedev because that's what it's going to take. You know, that took a little while for players to to start doing that. Um, I do think Medvedev needs to move. Yeah, I, I, I have said this in all of his matches against uh, all of his recent losses. He needs to move up. And uh, try to scare these guys away from that tactic. To take time away. To not give them the time to close the net. To squeeze the front court to make it difficult, more difficult for them to hit uh, drop volleys successfully. Uh, Daniil needs to do all of those things. And I just, I understand that his technique is long on the return. And that he is used to returning from deep in the court, you know. But there is no way that he can't move up. <laughs> there's just, there's no chance that he is technically unable to do that. He just needs to, he needs to do it. So, um, I, I we need to all com continue to monitor that situation. From Andrew Liu, uh, I watched Casper Ruud and Ben Shelton at Cincinnati and Ruud was complaining that there wasn't enough space for him to return. Uh, Shelton's kick serve was landing at Ruud's shoulder level. Uh, do you think that there should be a mandatory length behind the baseline on all courts? 
I don't think every court needs to be standardized necessarily. I mean, there is definitely regulations that say uh, courts cannot be smaller than so. I don't know what those measurements are, but but you know, let's be real. In order for uh, in order to have licensed tour level matches, you know, and in order to to hold these matches, there are regulations that you need to adhere to. I'm a hundred percent sure that court dimensions are part of that. Uh, but what you will see at like 90% of venues are that the outer courts are smaller and that there's not as much space to return. Uh, ultimately, you know, that's a situation where I don't have a lot of sympathy for Casper. Like if I looked at the, if I looked at a court and I felt like players were really not able to assume a deep return position, you know, to any extent. And that it was just kind of, if the, if the dimensions of the court were kind of disrespecting the, the level of play or the, the pace of play that, that is a reality at the moment. Uh, I, I think we would know that if we saw it. You know, I saw that, that you know, rude Shelton situation. And, um, yeah, that's just a typical outer court. Uh, you know, I, I'm not too sympathetic for rude. I, I think that that could have come from some resentment about, again, just the, the fact that he was on the outer court and not a larger stadium court. So, I, I don't know. It's kind of, it, it's hard for me to really feel like tennis needs to make any changes here because like the venues are what the venues are. I, I can't see any of that changing. It, it's certainly interesting though. You got to be able to adapt, honestly, to conditions, to balls, to wind and to court dimensions. Like you just have to be able to adapt. And that's, I guess, where I stand on this from Jacob. Hey Gil, uh, besides being a slam, what other elements do you think make the U.S. Open and playing in Arthur Ashe special? The main thing is the size. It's the biggest stadium that there is, and that's the first thing that is incredible about, about Ashe is it is just absolutely enormous. So that's the main thing. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but there is also an energy to Arthur Ashe Stadium, uh, a certain buzz, a grandiose, uh, the, the celebrities that are that are courtside, that are being shown at the changeovers. You know, celebrities are at Wimbledon, right? We know that. But they're not shown on center court. They're just they're just shown on television. Uh, at the U.S. Open, it's the succession theme starts playing. And then you see Kendall Roy, right? And it's like, ah, like every changeover brings stimulus, brings energy, electricity. The music is loud, right? Uh, during warm-ups, the music is loud. Uh, the, there is a, there are elaborate lights going throughout the venue when the players walk out onto the court. It, it is very much like the, the modernization, um, of tennis's presentation where Wimbledon is the cathedral of, of tennis's presentation. And, you know, look, I don't want to leave Australia and Roland Garros out of it, like those aren't special and those don't have their own things. They certainly do. Um, I think Australian Open crowds are the best. Um, 
and I think there's a, an elegance, and I think the center court for Chatrier might be the most aesthetically pleasing. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe center court at Wimbledon might have something to say to that. But, uh, yeah, the U.S. Open has a, certainly a different thing going on. It, it is Arthur Ashe is very, very special for uh, many reasons. From Racket Talk, two questions here. I only really want to answer the first one. Um, as the U.S. Open is coming up shortly, one matchup that's in my head more than any other is the Nadal-Medvedev matchup. We may get to see it here or we may not, depending on things go. Uh, I think it would be a reasonable take to say that while Daniil's U.S. Open tune-up got progressively better event by event, there is a lack of fight and handling adversity. Well, especially in that Tsitsipas match where the serving reached a level of horrible that made Medvedev look so different from the man who won New York last year. With all this in mind, if we do get a Nadal-Medvedev match, can you talk a little bit about what makes Nadal such a hard matchup for Daniil and how the mental demons of recent big losses may play out? Why does Medvedev struggle so much in the matchup, even though the man he resembles the most out of the big three, Djokovic, has essentially written the playbook on how to beat Nadal? I think that the the part of this that I'm very much, you know, I definitely want to answer is the differences between him and Djokovic from a matchup standpoint. Uh, you know, without doing a full breakdown of a hypothetical Nadal Medvedev that we may not want, that we, you know, may not see here, and the time will come if we do see it, where I, I'll do a full preview of it. Uh, I, I want to answer how is Daniil different than Novak in the Nadal matchup? It's, it is a, a very different thing. Um, the biggest thing is time. Novak applies pressure in, in baseline rallies to Rafa with uh, how early he takes the ball. And uh, his and his ground stroke speed, you know, can do the same. Even though Novak's not un, an enormous hitter, uh, he can still rush Rafa on the other side of the court. When when it comes to Medvedev Nadal from the baseline, Rafa kind of has all day. Uh, that's the big difference. Medvedev, from a ground stroke speed standpoint and a court positioning standpoint does not apply the pressure that Djokovic applies. So, uh, yes, Djokovic is a great defender, but he has so much more in baseline rallies than um, than Daniil does. He has way more. He has a, a much more complete package there. Medvedev's baseline game revolves around the shot tolerance and the defense and the depth, uh, how well he trades, how unattackable he remains and how many balls he's willing to play and his cardio and all of that and how he wears you down, right? That, that's what Medvedev's baseline game revolves around. The reason why Nadal plays him so well is because of how big Rafa's forehand is um, and, and how, how that can um, offer him a way to find offense against Medvedev, particularly the way he opens up the court with the angles, um, and how well he finishes at net. Because even with the enormous forehand Nadal has, even that is sometimes not enough to actually finish Medvedev off. That's how good his court coverage is. Uh, but Nadal is so good at using his forehand and finishing the deal in the forecourt. And that is why Medvedev's defense is often just not enough against uh, Rafa's attacking tennis. Um, you know, 
when Djokovic is at his best against Rafa, it's it's not about the defense. Uh, Novak can do a lot of dictating in that matchup. So so there's a big difference there. Uh, the second one I will say uh, I, I don't I never like to go back. It's about Nadal and Federer. They've never played at the U.S. Open. The question is, you know, what do I think would happen if they would have played? Basically, I, I never and I've gotten that question before, by the way, in the mailbag. And uh, haven't answered it. I don't. I don't have any interest in answering that question because I think some of the fun in me predicting matches is we get to see at least if I'm right or wrong. Uh, you know, that's kind of part of the point about it. Uh, I don't have any interest in in litigating a matchup where we're never going to see if you know we're we're never going to get to see it. So if I'm wrong, what is the use in me putting that out there? Um, I don't want to say that a player A or player B would have won if if we're never going to get to see if it's a right or if it's a wrong kind of inkling or hunch that I have. Uh, from Callum. Hi, Gil. What are your thoughts on what Felix's next steps need to be to get uh, from consistent quarterfinalist in the big tourneys to the elite level? His defensive and conversion game. I'm not sure what you mean by conversion. You mean transition like to the net? Uh, have improved so much, yet he's still stuck outside the top five or six. Uh, is it just that he needs more time to develop, or is there a problem in his approach that is a potential roadblock? Uh, love the channel. Appreciate it, Callum. Um, there's a couple of things with Felix. It's certainly not one. You know, the first thing is just always controlling the errors on the forehand with him. Uh, I, I do think that there can be problems on the backhand occasionally, but uh, generally, I mean, look, I mean, that was the main thing that happened, I thought, against Rude was the backhand. It was just a terrible day. Uh, mentally, I want him to to kind of make the, the step that Sinner made. I want him to get more comfortable with himself on the court, especially when things are going badly. Uh, I want him to be able to express himself and... Uh, go from being a Felix who is struggling and upset to a Felix that actually works out of that. Uh, I feel like now, you know, when he really gets down bad, he never digs himself out, um, has been kind of my observation. Uh, the second serve has had a bit of a relapse here. He needs to be able to get his second serve to the righty backhand. I think that's very important. Keep the double faults down. Uh, he still doesn't really have a kick serve. You know, he might be able to be fine without one for the rest of his career, but that's something to monitor. Uh, look, where he has improved is his court positioning. He is understanding how to move on a tennis court. He he used to be totally static, and now he will take time away when apt. He will move back and get in good defensive position when apt. He will put more shape on the ball when he is playing deeper in the court. He will move up in the court and he will take shape away and take pace off and come forward. Like he just has such a better understanding of how to play a rally. I mean, it's night and day from how he used to be. He, he now just, you know, he knows how to construct a point. That's the big improvement. But, you know, there are still things technically that that uh, that can certainly get better, and mentally. 
from Tyler, uh, let's talk court speed. You've spoken recently about how the U.S. Open plays faster since 2019 and also, for example, how Indian Wells plays super slow. It would be great if we had objective measures of court speed slash bounce. Is this something ATP, WTA, or even Tennis Channel is working on? Uh, it would be great to have a metric to quantify the difference tournament to tournament. Thank you for your insights. Uh, good question. Well, there is CPI, Court Pace Index, which uh, is a measurement that you know, really takes, um, you know, I used to know how they measured that. And for some reason, that information has escaped my brain and I need a refresher on that. Uh, I know that CPI is just about the court, doesn't take into account the altitude, the temperature, you know, the tennis balls in use, right? So it's an incomplete thing. Uh, ultimately, I'd be curious to know what Hawkeye can whip up you know, Hawkeye is really the best data collection that we have in tennis. So, uh, yeah, I would love for there to be a very accessible uh, data point that fans can see about the specific court speed event to event. I don't know if that is uh, the main priority right now amongst issues in the sport, but I would love for that to become a reality. Uh, it would require, though, one of the collectors of data. Uh, Hawkeye would be the most ideal, but even if it were to be, uh, I don't know, SAP runs all of the tennis insights for the WTA. Infosys does it for the ATP. IBM does it for the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. You know, it would take one of, you know, those entities to make it a priority and to try to, uh, I don't know, um, deliver that. But yeah, it's just another example. Tennis analytics, Stone Age, Stone Age, especially for what fans can access. Uh, God, I mean, you guys know if, if you're a soccer fan, you know, expected goals and, and all that stuff, uh, hockey, Corsi, uh, basketball, player efficiency rating. I mean, tennis just doesn't have this stuff and it totally can, totally can, but it doesn't. From Kaya, hey Gil, I've been enjoying your channel since 2017. Wow, thank you. Uh, now that you have had uh, more years of experience analyzing tennis matches, uh, what have you learned most during this time? And when watching matches, is there anything you value in a player now that you may have overlooked back then? Is there any quality you overvalued in a player that you may not care about now? Um... Well, first of all, I really don't remember how I was processing matches in 2017. It's kind of like if you watched me work out in the gym every day, right? And you saw me every day. Hey, Gil. Hey, Gil. Hey, Gil. And let's say I got super dedicated, which I, I have trouble doing. I'm like sort of on and off in the gym. Uh, if, but if I were super de dedicated and I gained 20 pounds of muscle over the course of a year, you actually wouldn't notice because you're seeing me every day and it happens so slowly. It's the only way you would notice is if, you know, you had a before and after, right? Uh, it's kind of like that for me. Like, I know that I look at tennis matches different from 2017, but it's hard for me to really put my finger on what. Here is my best hunch or inkling. I think that now I focus much more on the serve return dynamic than I used to uh, because the rally length data 
which has been much more accessible and much more prominent. You have to give a lot of credit to Craig O'Shaughnessy for this, by the way, uh, much more pro prominent in recent years has revealed just the extent to how many rallies are played in the zero through four shot length category. So it would have been foolish for me to not take that and uh, start to think long and hard about, you know, when I'm breaking down tennis matches, how much do I need to be paying attention to the four, first four shots in a rally? And what are the patterns that are that are within that rally length? So that is one difference. And then I also think in 2017, I was much more focused on um, on the technical, you know, kind of random technical dynamics. I try to be much more aware now of the mental side. I try to be much more aware of the the flow of a match and and important points and how things played out. And uh, I do think that I've grown in that area as well. Did that answer the question? I think it. I think that's the best I'm going to be able to do on this one. From our friend Donut, Donut McMuffin. I know you try to be impartial when it comes to tennis. So I want to know what teams and players in the NFL you like and why can be for any reason. So I used to be a Giants fan for a very short... So I'm a New Yorker. I'm either going to be a Jets fan or a Giants fan. I just want to say that. Uh, for a very short period, uh, actually when the Giants won the Super Bowl in 2007, um, I was a Giants fan when they beat the Patriots. And at that time, I was a Giants fan. I reached a point um, where the Giants, and this is true, bored me to death. I mean, Eli was boring. Tom Coughlin was boring, and uh, I became a Jets fan, and now I'm a Jets fan. I have been for for years and years and years and years. Uh, when they when the the Jets and the Giants they were both pretty good, but when the Jets had Mark Sanchez and Rex Ryan, that was fun, and Darrell Revis that was fun, Cromartie that was exciting. I, I liked that, and I'm just like, yeah, no, I like the Jets. This team has personality. It was a big Rex guy. Um, and, you know, the Jets have been terrible for a while now. Um, and I've, you know, think about the NFL. I'm not a, I'm not a huge, I'm not, I, it doesn't matter the Jets. I'll watch football every Sunday. And sometimes I won't even watch the Jets. But I'm, I'm a Jets fan because the Giants bored me to death. True story. From Bruno Alves, if you are Rafa, who do you want to avoid the most in the round of 16? Kyrgios, Sinner, or Chorich? Um, I still think Nick is the most uncomfortable because of the serve. You know, it takes the racket out of your hand. You're, you're concerned that he has an incredible serving night. You're concerned that, or day, you're concerned that he's popping it in there at, you know, over 70% that he's hitting his spots and that he's not giving you much of a chance. That's what you're concerned about. You know, Rafa knows how good Yannick Sinner is, but he also knows that he's going to, you know, get rhythm. He's going to get to feel the ball. He's going to get to go mano a mano from the baseline um, in sort of a comfortable, rhythmic manner. And, you know, the same is kind of true of Borna Chorich. And I think for Chorich, there's, uh, there's some larger picture questions about the sample size there. Um, so yeah, I, I think he wants to avoid Nick, honestly.
From Angelos, hi Gil, uh, do you see Djokovic reaching 100 titles in his career? He is currently at 88. And secondly, what do you think uh, Alexei Popperin's ceiling ranking is? For, um, and this is from Angela, it looks like a Greek name, right? Is Popperin Greek? I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out why, why, uh, I just haven't gotten a Popperin question in a while, so I'm just curious. Anyway, uh, Djokovic, 100, money in the bank. Yeah. Money in the bank. Easily gets to 100. Uh, secondly, uh, Popperin, his back end needs to get a whole lot better. I mean, his back end's an, an enormous, enormous weakness. So, uh, I don't know. His career high is just outside the top 50, I want to say. Uh, I think his ceiling is maybe 40. Unless something changes on the back end side. From AJ or AJ, I'm not sure. Uh, Gil, love the show. Thank you. Question about Borna. With the inconsistencies of the other players currently, can you make a case that perhaps it wouldn't be too premature to say that he can make a deep run in New York? I know there is no evidence or track record to go back on to make such a claim. Uh, this would be a gut call based on very recent evidence. But from what you saw in Cincy, isn't, the time, isn't it the time to make a bold call? Like you said, his mental game has always been strong. I know the draw will be interesting. Uh, he'll be seated 29th, yada, yada, yada. Um, look, can he make a deep run? Heck yeah. Heck yeah, he can make a deep run. And you know, there is an argument to be made. Borna Cioric is not like, I don't know what a good example is. I don't know. Uh, like, I guess on the women's side, like Jill Teichman won Cincinnati last year. Then it was like, oh, is Jill Teichman a U.S. Open contender? Well, Jill Teichman never showed the promise or the ability to, to you know, be a consistent top 10 player, right? As good as she is, and she's a good player. Uh, but Borna actually did. You know, it, this isn't completely out of nowhere. Borna was 12 in the world, well on his way from a trajectory standpoint to being a top 10 player. So uh, there's plenty there. I would just say, again... If the U.S. Open Power Rankings went to 15, I would make Chorich like 15th. So, you know, there's reason for optimism for Borna Chorich, but at the same time, I would be pretty surprised if... Um, I'd be pretty surprised if he made the final weekend, that's for sure. Very surprised. Uh, I also feel like it is the most wide-open U.S. Open draw on the men's side that I can remember. Seriously. So that bodes well. If you are like 15th in the power rankings, there, there have been many slams where I felt like one through six, one through seven of the power rankings were stacked, were dynamite, were awesome. And I just, I don't feel that way. Uh, this year, I feel like there's very little difference between five in the power rankings, with which was Tsitsipas, and 15, which I'm saying right now, it doesn't go to 15, but if it did, it would have been Chorich. Last one here from Bolarich. Do you stand by your praise video about Seb Korda as the future of American tennis, considering he hasn't really delivered in 2022? Interesting question. Look, at the end of the day, I stand by everything I said in that uh, video about his abilities. In fact, I went and checked, seeing this comment, I went and checked to see what I said in that video because I had completely forgotten about it. And uh, I was pretty spot on. Yeah, not going to pat myself on the back, but I was pretty spot on. If you look at what I actually said, um, I talked about 
his power off the ground, his exceptional backhand, his calmness um, in um, in baseline rallies and how easy the power baselining comes to him off of both wings, the technique on the serve that it just seems like that shot's going to get bigger, uh, the fluent movement, you know, all of those things. But at the end of the day, like he, his ground strokes are just, he's quite the ball striker and, and he delivers awesome power. Uh, really, you know, think about him pretty much the same as you would Yannick Sinner. Um, but I said, he's got to stay healthy. He's got to build up his body. If he doesn't stay healthy, that's going to be a problem. And unfortunately, like the worst case scenario besides, I, I don't want to say it's been worst case scenario for Seb because he hasn't had a major injury that's required surgery and has put him on the shelf for a while. Like that hasn't happened, but has he been like continuously injured all the time? Yeah. And I think it's just slowed down his progress. I heard from, I think it was Jim Courier who said this. I heard that he can't really lift weights um, until now. He's he's just getting back, getting in the gym now uh, because he's had so many injury issues that he hasn't been able to focus on the strength training. And like, that's a problem. You have to be healthy enough to, uh, to be able to put in the hard yards in the gym. And I feel like um, that's my concern with Corda and it remains my concern, but from a racket skills standpoint, technique and racket skills, I still think that Corda has the highest ceiling among the Americans. It's just he needs to be healthy in order to fulfill it. Full stop. I think he has the right people around him. I think he's got a good head on his shoulders and all the talent in the world. That body needs to hold up. Okay, this was fun. Draw comes out tomorrow. I will preview it quarter by quarter, and then I am off to New York. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.